The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The drumbeat is getting louder as the Secretary of State meets with his counterpart from Russia. New questions today about America's posture in Ukraine. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as we focus on the standoff heading into this weekend. We'll get the latest from Bloomberg's Nick Wadhams, who's now reporting that the U.S. is considering pulling diplomats' family members out of Ukraine. And we'll talk strategy with retired Marine Corps General Arnold Pinaro and hear insights from the panel this Friday. We have Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Republican strategist Jennifer Nassour, former chair of the Massachusetts GOP. Later this hour, my conversation with Senator Sherrod Brown, Democrat from Ohio who chairs the Banking Committee on possible Russia sanctions. And a big announcement today as well on manufacturing computer chips in his state. We'll hear more about the big deal with Intel announced earlier. Reading the headline this morning uh, was startling enough for a lot of us. U.S. ways pulling diplomats' family members out of Ukraine. Makes it sound real. And it comes on the same day that Secretary of State Antony Blinken meets with his Russian counterpart, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. They sat down in Geneva in what was the latest in what seems like a hundred uh, meetings, talks at various levels over the last two weeks. They both spoke after they emerged from the meeting. Let's start with Secretary Blinken. Here he is. This was not negotiation but a candid exchange of concerns and ideas. I made clear to Minister Lavrov that there are certain issues and fundamental principles that the United States and our partners and allies are committed to defend. That includes those that would impede the sovereign right of the Ukrainian people to write their own future. There is no trade space there. None. Pretty definitive. And the U.S. agreed to follow up with a response in writing next week. Here's Sergei Lavrov. At the end of our meeting, we agreed that next week the U.S. is going to present us with written answers to all of our proposals. Secretary Blinken said that he is satisfied with the exchange of views that we've just had, and this will help them present us in writing their reaction. Really curious to see if we get to read it. Of course, the U.S. is promising Heavy-duty sanctions if Russia were to invade Ukraine, something I asked Senator Sherrod Brown about today. He chairs the Senate Banking Committee, which would be directly involved in crafting those sanctions. He we says if Russia invades. On, Here he is. We come down hard on sanctions, and these are sanctions for sure aimed at their banking sector and aimed at, at, at Russian companies, but these are also san sanctions that are aimed right at Putin and his cronies. and. They know we mean business. There is uh, absolute consensus in the House and Senate on this. So we're hearing about this from all corners now, and you can hear my full conversation with Senator Sherrod Brown later this hour. Let's get back to what's happening on the ground here. The latest from Bloomberg's Nick Wadhams. He shares the byline on the story I mentioned about possible evacuations. Under this plan, as I read, family members of our diplomats in Ukraine would be ordered to return home, uh, while non-essential employees would be able to leave voluntarily. Nick, thank you for joining us. It's great reporting. Uh, does this feel like a new level of urgency? 
Well, I think what you're seeing is uh, they have had contingency plans for a while, but um, there's coming. Uh, we're coming quickly to a crunch point where we're going to know uh, either way what Russia's intentions are. So they they have a window uh, in which they can invade, and I think you're seeing the U.S. Uh, they do not want to be caught in a situation where they leave uh, their diplomats and their families vulnerable. Uh, you know, obviously they got stung after Afghanistan and some right. some other situations. So while they're they're not predicting another Afghanistan for Ukraine, we're nowhere near. Uh, that situation, but we do expect an announcement in the next few days that they will uh, have family members leave. So I that is that's... coming. But yes, it's it's definitely a heightened level of uh, concern and anxiety that this thing is not getting uh, less tense, only more tense right now. Afghanistan was the first thing I guess everybody thought of. There were questions in the White House briefing today about, do you know how many Americans are there? Uh, the White House is acutely aware of this concern. That's right. And, you know, again, it is it is important that obviously Ukraine is not another Afghanistan. But, right. you know, this is a, fl- a flaw in in uh, how uh, what happens with America and the way that Americans go overseas. I mean, I think, as Jen Psaki said, you know, we don't put a microchip in every American who travels overseas, uh, but they don't really have a great sense of how many Americans are in any particular country. You basically have to uh, take that responsibility on yourself and register with with the embassy when you go. So they don't really have a sense. They have warned Americans not to go. Ukraine is it has its highest, the State Department's highest warning level, level four, which is essentially please do not go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's in effect. Um, but what you're seeing here is a real desire to make sure that those family members are safe and they don't have a real rush for the exits if things do get bad. Uh, as we consider our posture in Ukraine, has anything changed in Russia's posture on the border while talks have been underway? Uh, well, you know, it's a great question because on the face of it, no. Uh, there are 100,000 or so troops on the border and they are not getting, they're not being pulled back in any way. But still weeks into this uh, problem, this crisis, the administration still does not have the answer that it has been trying to get uh, figure out uh, for all this time, which is mm. what does Vladimir Putin actually want to do? Uh, what is his plan? And uh, they still do not know. The one thing that uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, said uh, as well today was that he called all this talk of war hysteria. Uh, mm-hmm. So they insist they do not plan to invade. But, you know, the inner circle around Vladimir Putin is so small and in some cases doesn't even include Sergei Lavrov himself. So this is really up to Putin. And yeah. I hate to say it, but at this point, no one really knows. Bloomberg's Nick Wadhams. Appreciate it very much, Nick, and great reporting once again. We want to turn to the strategy here on both sides as we're joined by retired Marine Corps General Arnold Panaro, former staff director on the Senate Armed Services Committee, chair of the National Defense Industrial Association. He also wrote the book, The Ever-Shrinking Fight Force. General, welcome back. I'm glad you're here. And I wonder, what is your threat assessment heading into this weekend? Do you believe Russia will actually cross the border? Well, look, I'm privileged to be on the program. And I would say as a military person uh, right now, Russia has Ukraine surrounded on three sides, what I would call three flanks. Uh, They can come in from the north from Belarus. They can come in you know, on the common border with Russia, where your reporter talks about the 100,000. But when you look at the armored force and the artillery force they have massed, it's more significant than the number of people. And they've also uh, gotten the Black Sea and and can come in from Crimea on the south. 
So if you're a military person, you can only look at that as an invasion force of substantial uh, measure. Uh, you know, that's larger than, than um, a huge number of divisions, and they've got the capability uh, to move quickly. Uh, the Ukrainian defenses are no match for the Russian armored columns. So if you're a military person, you have to look at the capability uh, that's there and, 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 and not just the intent. I would say, as, he, as your colleague said on the intent, who knows? Uh, but I would sure. say this. We know one thing. He's a KGB thug. He's an autocrat. He's a dictator for life. The only thing Putin understands is force on force. So you're not going to really deter him with a talk of, oh, we're going to handcuff you. We're going to take a few bucks out of your bank account. Putin himself's got billions of dollars stashed in banks all over the world. It isn't going to hurt him. This is a man that doesn't care about what happens to the Russian people. And, and if they sure. go into extreme circumstances, he and his oligarchs are going to fare very well. well. So I'm, I'm not sure the kind of sanctions. Uh, they understand force. We should be beefing up. And deterrence is what counts. How well, with that in mind, is, have, we, have we helped Ukraine at all uh, fend off the Russians with the weapons that we and the defensive well, I, systems I don't we've think given we've them? helped them enough, and our allies have not helped them enough. I mean, just today, Germany denied Estonia the uh, permission to send German lethal weapons to Ukraine to help Ukraine. So one of our biggest NATO allies basically said, nope, don't, don't send them any German lethal weapons. We should be giving Ukraine the weapons that the Russians fear the most, anti-tank yeah. missiles, anti-missile. But the other thing is if you want to really hurt Russia economically, their number one export is oil. You've got to go after their oil exports, and it's not just the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which really isn't in full operations. Um, it's the trains that take oil to China. It's the, it's the every 15 minutes there's a Soviet oil or Russian oil tanker in the Baltic Sea that goes through the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus yeah. to get to warm water. That's where you hurt Russia when you go after their economic well-being. Well, General, I'm reading in Politico here that the State Department has given the go-ahead for three NATO allies to rush anti-armored missiles and other U.S.-made weapons to Ukraine, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania. Is this the right direction? Well, absolutely. But, I mean, it's probably a day late and a dollar short. But, I mean, anything we can do to beef up deterrence and to show the, the Russians that it not only will be a tremendous economic cost, but it also will be a tremendous military cost. I remember because I was the staff director of the Armed Services Committee when we authorized stingers in Afghanistan to, to knock out the Soviet helicopters. That's when Gorbachev, once they started really taking those kind of uh, hits, that's when Gorbachev decided it wasn't worth being in there any longer. But it bothers me that the Germans, who ought to be more concerned than anybody, I mean, let's face it, huh. uh, they, they had a pretty good well. uh, a fist fight with Russia in World War II, is not allowing their lethal weapons to go. Well, so how much is this about the Nord Stream 2, then? We have less than a minute, General. Yeah. But I, I would say, I would say, unfortunately, I think some of our allies are putting their own economic concerns ahead of the deterrence and the NATO. But I mean, you, like the Nord Stream you have pipeline? To deter with force. Say again? Well, like the Nord Stream pipeline, I'm asking. I think the Germans are protecting their access to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, yeah. which is a ba which is not a good situation. So, you know, not only is Germany the richest country in NATO and Europe, but they don't meet their own NATO obligations. And now they're not being that helpful when it comes well, to General, I do appreciate your insights. Arnold Panaro. We'll make more time next time, General. Thank you for being here on Sound On. We'll assemble the panel next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So no breakthrough in the standoff over Ukraine as we wait for the U.S. to respond next week. Now that'll lead to another round of talks and we'll see where we are here with the panel. We assemble the panel to talk about it with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Jennifer Nassour is back with us today. Republican strategist, former Massachusetts GOP chair and founder of the Pocketbook Project. Thanks to both of you for being here Uh, Jeannie, this is a test, no matter what direction it goes in here, for Joe Biden, not the way he was planning once again to start his second year. How is he doing so far in his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, the man for this job? He, you know, Anthony Blinken, he has been pushing this. I think there were some good signs today that they are going to continue with a written response. The longer you can keep the diplomatic channels open, the less likely they go ahead with an incursion. And as Nick mentioned, there is a timeline here. They have a time frame in which they cannot go in. So, you know, that is important. But with Russia, you never know, particularly with Putin, to, Rick, uh, to Nick's other point, you never know what they're thinking. It's unclear, just for instance, is this a real diplomatic effort? Are they serious about this, seeking a solution, or are they stalling? And can the United States and NATO offer Putin something, some kind of off-ramp here? Um, There's no easy off-ramp, and that's, I think, the substance of these responses the United States provides next week or over the weekend are going to be critical to seeing whether this is going to be escalated further. Sergey Lavrov calls it hysteria, this talk of... (laughs) Well, there's 100,000 troops on the border. Uh, I can't imagine what would lead us to believe this. Jennifer, I'm curious what you think of the messaging coming out of the administration, because there was confusion following the president's news conference this week, the two-hour marathon. And I know the White House cleaned this up within hours uh, after he he had some confusing remarks about sort of grades of invasion and, and what might elicit a response from the U.S. or be worthy of a of an American response. Now that that's been cleaned up and Antony Blinken is back in Geneva with the foreign minister from Russia, is the messaging back on track? I mean, is it really cleaned up? <laughs> right. I mean, you tell me. I think that, that well, I think that the president went out and did exactly what Jen Psaki and the rest of his his team does not want him to do, which is go and answer questions freely. And and he gave carte blanche to the members of the press, which is awesome. And that's what we, the American people, needed. However, he seemed to to really put the U.S. in the back seat, maybe in the trunk um, when it comes to foreign policy. And he really let Putin kind of take the reins here, even more so than he did. And I think he put all of us and Europe um, and our allies in a very precarious situation. But so by by threatening a devastating response to uh, an invasion, he, he put the U.S. in a trunk. How? Well, because I think he allows Russia 
to uh, to really see his cards and see that he's weak. He's weak on foreign policy. He has no plan. And he has no plan, as we saw in Afghanistan, to be an ally to anyone. And so we're not really sure at this point where the Biden administration is going when it comes to foreign policy or domestic policy. His answers the other the other day were um, were jumbled. They were incoherent. He seemed to lose his train of thought from one moment to the other. And as the president of the United States, I think he made our position in the U.S. weaker on the national stage than than anyone, any president in my lifetime has ever done. Well, that's quite a statement, Jeannie. Following the news conference that we talked about in real time, uh, has have enough enough days gone by and enough statements been made to to figure out kind of what we mean and, and how we mean it? Well, you know, there was one, you know, sort of um, positive aspect of his his speaking out of turn, if you will, which was they had to come back and clean up. So now it is clear that there is no gray area. If Russia engages in any kind of incursion, as Anthony Blinken said today and has been repeated many times, there is agreement amongst NATO and the allies that they will respond. And so that is that is clear. I think that the bigger question is you know, we can't estimate what Putin is thinking. So we need to assume the worst. And that means we need to assume that he is intent on undermining the United States, weakening democracies and our alliances and NATOs. And that means we need to move forward with all the things that Blinken and Biden have been talking about, all the economic leverage and all the military leverage. We have a lot of that at our disposal. Mm -hmm. But a big challenge domestically is I think the president has got to get out and explain to the American public in this election year, if they do, for instance, engage in economic sanctions in an election year, it could have a tough impact on energy costs in the United sure. States and Europe. And that's something we should be prepared for in the winter in an election year. So I'd like to hear him talk a little bit more about what the consequences of all this are for us and why this is so important to America, because that's something that has to be explained repeatedly by the president. Jennifer, we only have a minute, but what else do you want to hear, that, that the U.S. will have a military answer to an invasion of Ukraine? Well, you know, I, I don't disagree with what Jeannie just said. I, but what I will, you know, what I what I do want to just kind of drive home is that Anthony Blinken was not elected president of the United States. Joe Biden was. And what he says actually matters. And when he's speaking freely in a press conference, and he is not very clear about the intentions of the United States and where we are on uh, the on foreign policy. Yeah. I think that that really means something. Jeannie Shanzano, Jennifer Nasur with us for the hour. Our panel on this Friday, Sound On, our conversation coming up with Senator Sherrod Brown, who would help craft sanctions against Russia. He'll be here next on the program. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. And we want to welcome Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, chair of the Senate Banking Committee, about, well, a different topic than usual. Instead of talking about the Fed today, we're talking chips, computer chips, after the Biden administration announced that Intel would build the $20 billion chip foundry that I mentioned outside of Columbus, adding to what the White House says is $80 billion now in total new investment in semis here in the U.S. Uh, the senator was with President Biden for the announcement today. Over 30 years ago, America had about 40% of global production. But since that time, something happened. American manufacturing, 
the backbone of our economy got hollowed out. Companies moved jobs and production overseas, especially from in the industrial Midwest. Let's talk about it with Senator Sherrod Brown, who joins us now on Sound On. Senator, thanks for being here. Great. This is a $20 billion investment into domestic chip-making, Senator, and into your state of Ohio. How long will it take to be operational? Well, today we are burying the term Rust Belt. Uh, This is a new day for American manufacturing. Uh, Their investment starts this year. Uh, We will begin to see thousands of union building trades jobs. Uh, The timetable is theirs in terms of when it starts production. But you can bet that companies, not just um, Intel in Ohio, but companies in Columbus area, but companies in Cleveland and Toledo and Dayton and Akron and Cincinnati and all over our state will be scaling up as part of the supply chain and part of the effort uh, for Intel to be the biggest chips manufacturer for this plant, this site to be the biggest chips manufacturer in the world. We talk a lot about a worker shortage, Senator. Does Ohio have the workers to run a $20 billion foundry? Oh, you bet. We, we will have workers. Uh, already the trades in Ohio are ready to scale up. Uh, these are good-paying union jobs. Um, we have some of the best building trades workers, from carpenters to electricians to pipe fitters to millwrights to laborers to sheet metal workers in the, in the, in the world. And they are ready to go. We're working with getting more tradespeople uh, trained, and we'll work with Intel to do that. Um, but you're going to see, as you see when an auto plant transitions into a new line, when a Jeep Cherokee transitions into making a different product at, um, at, at their plant in Toledo, you will see hundreds of building trades descend on this site pretty soon, and some of them will be on that site for years and years. How did Ohio get this done? Why Ohio as opposed to another manufacturing state? Um, Ohio has such a proud history of manufacturing. Um, I've been working on these manufacturing institutes. The first one was in Youngstown. Uh, We enacted legislation and then followed through on this. Ohio has a history of of qualified manufacturing workers, trade workers in the trades, skilled workers. Uh, I think the Ohio State University played a big role in getting this in central Ohio. Uh, we've had a, uh, you know, we 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 are ready for this kind of success, and it will be it will be good for Intel and it will be good for our state. Senator, the chip shortage is not just about EVs and video games, of course, though they seem to get most of the coverage here. It brings up important national security implications. And as chair of the Senate Banking Committee, I, I'd just like to ask you quickly about the situation with Russia and how this all plays together here. You would be directly involved in any sanctions against Russia. In fact, you introduced a bipartisan bill several years ago to reinforce sanctions on Russia. As someone who majored in Russian studies at Yale, what are you prepared to do if there's an invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, any any kind of incursion is an invasion if they try to do uh, what they did in the Crimea, if they try to do that in Donbass region of, of Russia or of Ukraine, uh, because they say, well, there are a lot of Russians living there that call us in. If they do that kind of invasion or incursion, um, we come down hard on sanctions. And these are sanctions for sure aimed at their banking sector and aimed at, at, at Russian companies. But these are also san- sanctions that are aimed right at Putin and his cronies. And they know we mean business. There is uh, absolute consensus in the House and Senate on this. Uh, and Russia and Putin personally and his, his cronies that he's made rich, they will all suffer from this. So 
Um, he knows it. We make that clear. We're ready to do it if he decides to break international law and attack attack Ukraine. You understand the history and culture there better than most, Senator. Do you have a sense of what Vladimir Putin actually wants? Is this simply about slowing or stopping the expansion of NATO? Well, I think Putin uh, wants to be a wants to be known in Russian history as as a Stalin type figure, as so powerful that uh, loved mother loves Mother Russia and wants to ensure and, and and grow its place in the world. And I think he looks at former Russian and Soviet leaders. He looks at the czars. He looks at Catherine. He looks at Peter. He looks at Lenin. He looks at Stalin. And he sees himself in that pantheon of of Russian um, autocrats. And I think that drives him uh, more than any other single thing. Are you as chair of the committee working with the White House or with the State Department to craft additional sanctions then if necessary? Yeah, we, we are going to. These are going to be the strongest sanctions if, if Putin invades. Uh, these are going to be the strongest sanctions that um, I think that we've ever seen. How do you get him in a way that sanctions have not been able to touch him before now? Well, these are these are these are more aggressive. They're broader. They're deeper. We're better and better at how to sanction. In the past, we've got uh, new legislation on anti-money laundering and beneficial ownership, where we've learned how to um, how to squeeze autocrats and criminals and people that engage in gun running and sex trafficking and drug smuggling. Uh, we're just more sophisticated and better at it than we've ever been, and we're not going to be afraid. Uh, we're not going to be afraid to use the tools we have. Senator Sherrod Brown, I appreciate your time in answering my questions here. Once that chip foundry is open, we'd love to see what it looks like. Well, it will it will be incredible. So thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. It'd be the biggest in the world, they say, the world's biggest semiconductor manufacturing site in Ohio. So a lot to consider about this situation with Russia as we head into the weekend. Obviously, I suspect we'll see the Secretary of State and maybe other national security officials out on Sunday TV shows try to keep steering the narrative with an audience here in the U.S., but also in Moscow. We'll reassemble the panel next. Jeannie and Jennifer with us on the Friday edition of Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. I feel like this story deserved much more attention today. It was a redhead on the terminal. Biden's vaccine mandate for federal workers blocked nationwide. This, of course, follows the ruling last week blocking the vaxxer test requirement. Remember, for big private employers, we talked to Secretary Marty Walsh about it that day. In this case, a federal judge in Texas granted a nationwide preliminary injunction, as I read on the terminal against the president's executive order, covering all federal workers. Get a vaccine or get fired. The news broke during the White House briefing and White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki uh, was responding as she learned about it. Here she is. 
Well, first, let me update you that 98% of federal workers are vaccinated. Uh, that is a remarkable number. Uh, I would point you to the Department of Justice on any next steps as this news, it sounds like, just broke. Uh, but obviously, we, we are confident in our legal authority here. Well, the Department of Justice uh, tweeted through a spokesperson uh, shortly after that briefing that uh, says the department, quote, is filing a notice of appeal. Not a shocker there. Let's reassemble the panel and dig into this for a moment with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano with us. Jennifer Nassour is with us as well, Republican strategist and former chair of the Massachusetts GOP. If 98 percent are vaccinated, Jeannie, then what's the point anyway? You know, I, I think the president, he, they're going to still appeal this. The, the, uh, we, we believe they're going to appeal it as far as the tweet said. Yeah. Um, I think it is important. The president has wanted to make a stand. Um, but the fact is that we have seen from the Supreme Court to other levels of the federal judiciary that they have not been inclined to support these mandates particularly when they've been coming from the federal level. They've supported them at the state level, but not at the federal level. So it's going to be interesting to see if this does get to the Supreme Court, how it comes out. But the president has been in the midst of this pandemic and certainly the latest wave. He's been pushed by a lot of people to do more in more areas. And this was part of that strategy. So I think they're going to stick with it at this point, even though, to your point, you've only got about 2% of yeah. the workforce who's not vaccinated at this point. Is that worth fighting for, Jennifer? I don't want to get into an argument about mandates, but but more about the politics behind this. Why put the capital on the line? I mean, I, you know, I think that at this point we have seen that this is not um, a fight worth fighting at this right now. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, look, what do we know? The science keeps changing. We do know that. We hear that that science keeps changing, which is why the CDC changes it from 14 days in quarantine to 10 days in quarantine to five days in quarantine, why the mask rules are different. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's important to remember is that 98% are vaccinated. People are taking that personal responsibility. It is your personal responsibility. What we have seen is that even if you're vaccinated, you can still get COVID. It doesn't prevent you from getting it. And so what it does prevent is hospitalizations and deaths, which was the original standard. And so if people are vaccinated, that is awesome. But we cannot prevent people from going to work just because they're not getting the vaccine if they have something, some some reason why they can't. And, and I don't know. I mean, I don't live in a state. I live in a state where also 90% are vaccinated, right. but we still have to wear masks. Right? Speaking so, of which, I mean, should, uh, should wish Rochelle Walensky of your home state of Massachusetts be sent back home? Well, you know, I think it's very different when you run. Um, I have met her before. Um, she is a phenomenal doctor. However, I think that um, ha- being in charge of 80 people at Mass General is a very different position than being in the limelight and really being in a political, what has been become a politicized position. Yeah. And so um, I, I I have a ton of respect for her, but I think that um, that position is just way too politicized for what she's used to. Do you have a take on that, Jeannie? I don't mean to put you on the spot there, but the president seemed to acknowledge some of the messaging problems coming out of the CDC. There are some substantial and there have been messaging problems from the CDC. You know, it is not an easy task to take over at this time. And, you know, I think at this point they may be better served having somebody who's experienced with communications 
just like Jen Psaki speaks for the president, to have somebody speak yeah. for Rochelle Walensky. She is a phenomenal, to Jen's point, doctor. She is very experienced. She brings a, a lot, a lot to this position. But communications has not been her skill, and she hasn't excelled at that. So they may be better off putting a spokesperson in place through which they can get their message out because consistency and communication does matter. And another big story in the world of politics this week, and I have to bring it up before we're done, because we have the former chair of the Massachusetts GOP with us, of course. That's that's at least part of Jennifer's business card. There was big news on the governor's race in Massachusetts where the attorney general has jumped in. Listen to this. Massachusetts, I know the years of the pandemic have been really hard, but I see a state that's coming together with courage, grit and caring to do great things. From Worcester to Woburn, New Bedford to North Adams. Doesn't the music make you feel good about yourself? Maura Healy, Democrat Maura Healy, uh, widely anticipated, has a big war chest. The narrative was that Labor Secretary Marty Walsh was waiting to see if she was going to jump in. New York Times tweets she is the most well-known candidate to enter the the, the race to replace Governor Charlie Baker, a Republican who is not seeking re-election, and of course... The most popular governor in America uh, polled routinely over the course of his tenure. Jennifer, is she going to win? Well, um, that's not a yes. I will say, uh, I will say, as the former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party, um, you can't say yes. That you're not allowed to say that. I, no, I can't. I can't say yes. And I, I can say though that the Republican Party in Massachusetts is a mess. Um, it's a disaster, and the person who is um, the the currently the only candidate is not a qualified candidate. Jeff Deal is, so, is the is who you mean? Correct. Yeah. Um, on the Democratic side, I do think she has some some problems because number one, um, there is this curse of the AG, uh, which is oh. that there have been others that have run for Attorney General, so yes. Massachusetts. By statute, the attorney general cannot get collect a salary after their second term, which means that every attorney general then runs for governor. Being attorney general does not translate the management experience, does not translate to being a governor. And That's so true. But Maura Healy is a pretty visible line. attorney general, correct? And, and, a, and somewhat of a darling of, of the liberal Democratic Party in Massachusetts, friends with Elizabeth Warren. Is there not a little bit more juice there? You know, so I, I definitely don't disagree with that. And I would say, yes, she she is definitely on on the face of it, the front runner. However, um, Massachusetts, remember, is not as liberal as everyone would like to think. And everyone well, that's says. right. Absolutely we, right. Right. We, we have a very the, the majority of the voters are actually what we call unenrolled. So they're not independents. They're unenrolled, which means that they get to pick which primary they want to they want to vote in on primary day. Yeah. And so a lot of times those votes go because they don't like one candidate. They vote for someone else on purpose. And so we don't know where those voters are going. We don't know if they're going to come out. And so, you know, she she could potentially win. But I don't know if that's where Massachusetts wants to go over the past 30 years. Are you years, talking the primary or a general, if we're assuming this is a general, well, just before I asked Jeannie? In the, in the in the primary, yeah. you don't know. She's running against two other women who are both very intelligent. They're both also women of color. And they're both they're also roughly all the same age. Right. Um, there are no men in the race other than on the Republican side. So she has to get through the primary first, as long as those two women are still in the race. And then when it comes to the general election, 
We'll see. I'm still I'm still hoping that we can okay. pull a rabbit out of our hat. <laughs> okay, interesting, interesting. So this could develop further. Jeannie, what's your take on this? Uh, Maura Healy is not Martha Coakley, the former attorney general. Uh, no, she is not. Um, you know, she enters this race as something of an instant front runner on the, you know, in, in the entire race, because, of course, to Jen's point, they don't have a very strong candidate declared, at least at this point on the Republican side. She is running against two women of color who bring a lot to the race, but she does have the name recognition. She has the experience. So I think at this point, if you were going to guess, you would say she's got she the wins. money too. she's got the money. She, you know, she enters this leading of course a lot can change between now and november yeah. but she does have a very good at a very good shot at this and of course she has worked very hard in her role as a, attorney general and she has sued exxon mobile she has sued purdue pharma these have been you know most watched um and and, and uh you know sort of nationally acclaimed yeah. um positions she's taken and so yeah. she enters the race with a lot and we have a lot of exciting gubernatorial races coming up and i lived in massachusetts that's one new york has another where kathy hochel is gonna try to win uh you know her first race as governor and so there's a lot of these races across the country that are worth watching you are right that uh, taking down the sackler family is a pretty good story to tell right now for maura healy curious though if you both agree with the conventional wisdom uh, i ask you first Jeannie. marty walsh stays in washington I think he stays in Washington. I think he stays coming on sound on to talk to you, Joe. I think that's the reason he's not running. He wants to remain in Washington and come on sound on. What do you think, Jennifer? What did he tell you? <laughs> I, I love I love Jeannie's response. I, I think she's right, although I have to say my uh, my wish would be that our former mayor would come back to Massachusetts and run for governor because wow. he did a wonderful job in the city of Boston. He there you have it from governor. the former chair of the Mass GOP, Jennifer Nassour. Thank you, Jennifer, for being here as well. Jeannie Shanzano, as always, Bloomberg Sound On, brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, which announced that renowned scholar and educational leader Dr. Tech Lim will join the university as NJIT's ninth president. Learn more at njit.edu. Have a weekend. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.